Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast with the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Bryony Merritt. The 8th of March is International Women's Day. To mark this annual event, this episode of Birkbeck Voices will focus on issues affecting women. Whether it's politics or prisons, boardrooms or science labs, or considering how women age, or are expected to, we will hear about the areas being researched by female academics from across the college. We start by speaking to Baroness Bakewell, more widely known as television presenter Joan Bakewell, who's president of Birkbeck. Joan, you studied economics and history at Cambridge in the 50s and then went on to forge a career as a journalist and presenter at the BBC at a time when women were much less likely to study at university and were much less visible in public arenas. Now you're a member of the House of Lords and you've also acted as the government's voice for older people, so you must have quite a personal viewpoint on one or two of the topics that our academics are going to be speaking about. Um, can you tell us what it was like being at Cambridge and then at the BBC in those days as a woman and what you've observed happening to women's place within those organisations and broader society over the last 60 years? I was at Newnham College in the 50s. Newnham College was only women and uh, Girton College was only women and women were not allowed in any of the other colleges. So uh, two out of the 14 colleges at Cambridge were exclusively for women and the West were exclusively for men. This went made for highly exciting social life, but of course it had enormous ramifications for our own sort of psyche and the outlook we had on the world. Clearly the women who managed to get there and stayed there at Newnham and Girton had a sense of sisterhood, not a word we would have dreamt of using in those mm. days, but they did feel that they were part of the onward change that was going forward and the various halls of Newnham are named after distinguished women who've achieved things. Um, I'd already been at a grammar school which had houses called Austins, Brontes, Nightingales, etc. So I was aware of a tide of women who were applying them seriously to study um, in a world in which that was not very extensively available to women. So it did give you a sense of... um, that times were changing and we were part of the change. In fact, we were spearheading the change. Yes. Now, you very flatteringly uh, referred to my uh, forging a career at the BBC. Forging a career is inappropriate as a phrase. I led a very wayward kind of life in terms of how I organised my ambitions. The ambitions were strong, but the, the availability of opportunities was very limited. For example, um, I worked in radio and I was going to marry someone who was a radio drama producer and it was made clear that if I wanted to be a drama producer I could not be married to one. So the opportunities were shut down for me to work in radio drama. I got married to him, he had a successful career, I went somewhere else. So there were lots of, your life was hedged in by the way society treated women generally. When it came to my having children, there was no maternity leave, no job was held open for you, there was no maternity provision, you made it for yourself. I lost out economically, automatically, that was just assumed to be how things were. And when in fact my children were toddlers, I employed an au pair and in fact paid um, uh, and took a part-time job. The part-time job paid less than I paid the au pair, but it was worth doing because that's how I wanted my life to be. So money didn't really come into it, and it was counterproductive 
to uh, take such a job, but it kept me in the world of work, and that was very, very important. There was a rather um, a serious revolt in the 1960s which led to the wave of feminism among women who'd got degrees um, and taken part-time jobs while they had children and then found themselves slightly marooned in domesticity when they um, would have preferred to have had opportunities going for them. But there weren't such opportunities. Um, the Guardian newspaper set up a women's Guardian group and women started to be in touch with each other and hold meetings. And you get the first of the, of the feminist lobby taking shape because we were very influenced by Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, which we all felt applied to us. And we knew something must be done. So n now, now that I'm 80, you know, 60 years later, I have lived through a fantastic change in the status of women in the economy, um, domestically, in academic life, um, but it is a work in progress. So I greet the women who you're going to include here because they are part of the continuing change. I've moved to be part of the elders of the tribe, as it were. Um, I've still worked, but my work obviously is not in the forefront of um, the world in which I've lived. And the, and the baton has been handed on to others. And that's quite appropriate because they can perceive where the next horizon is, whereas my horizons really end with them. And um, you mentioned that it is still a work in progress. And um, I imagine that work is uh, further advanced in the UK than it is in um, some other countries. And you have recently been to Burma. And can you tell us a little bit about your trip there and, and what you've been Yes, I went with? to the um, Iriwadi Literary Festival and was invited to interview Aung San Suu Kyi there. She has a status of a sort of goddess, really. I mean, quite unlike any other acclaim you would get in the West of a politician of any sex, either sex, um, let alone a woman. And she has, as you know, been in house under house arrest for a total of some 17 years with the breaks included in there. Um, so she is resolutely determined to make a bid for the presidency of Burma, but they need to change the constitution to allow her to do so. That does not deter her. She has a will of steel. And what is clear, I asked her where she got her strength, and she spoke of her Buddhist faith. Now, that's very interesting because Buddhism does, in fact, teach you enormous self-knowledge and sort of internal security and balance, and it grounds you in the world. So I was very impressed by that. And um, I did also remark that Southeast Asia has had women leading their countries, yeah. quite a number of them, and it was she who conceded that, yes, they have done that, and they are doing it, but they only succeed when they're part of a dynasty. And she indeed is part of a dynasty because it was her father, Aung San, who was the hero of Burmese independence. Mm. So she conceded the fact that for women to lead, even though they do it, they have to be part of a ruling dynasty. That's how things are there. So um, she's certainly a very modern woman in her attitude to government. Um, she's very positive. She has still to formulate policies and make them known. She has a long way to go, but she exemplifies for women worldwide um, what is happening, which is globally 
women are coming to the fore. I mean, you only have to look at, you know, Christine Lagarde, um, Baroness Ashton, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, just to name a few. But there are more and more high-profile leading women coming forward. And that's inevitable because they've got the talent, just that they've not been given the opportunity. And it's beginning to show. It's wonderful. Yes. Thank you. That was really interesting to hear about um, your discussions. Um, and now you already mentioned about passing the baton on to the next generation of female thinkers. So um, we're now going to hear from academics across Birkbeck about the research that they're doing on these issues. It would be great to hear them. Dr Rosie Campbell is a reader in Birkbeck's Department of Politics, whose research looks at several aspects of gender and politics. Today we're talking to Dr Campbell about the issue of mothers being excluded from careers as members of Parliament. Dr Campbell, can you tell us what your research has been looking at? Well, my colleague Professor Sarah Charles from Bristol University and I have done a lot of research about women in politics and why only 22% of our MPs are women. But the more research we've done on the topic, the more we realise we tend to elide women and mothers. And a lot of the barriers to political participation for women are due to the fact that women still take on the majority of the caring for young children. So we wondered, well, do women who are in Parliament already have fewer children than men? Certainly there's anecdotal evidence that they might do. And we think there might be policy implications if we have fewer mothers in politics. Does that mean that actually there are fewer people with experience of bringing children and the consequences of that, bringing up children and the consequences of that in Parliament? And what we found, actually, I found quite startling that on average, well, um, on average, the average number of children per MP was 1.72, but that masks quite a significant difference between men and women, because on average men had 1.9 children and women 1.2. And I think the most startling difference is that 45% of women MPs compared to 28% of men MPs have got no children at all. So amongst MPs in the House of Commons, women at 45% are more than double the average in the country or in the population. So about 20% of the population, no children, 45% of women MPs. So we think this really does confirm what we suspected, that there are barriers to women who are mothers, particularly entering the House of Commons. And we wondered, well, is this just something that's true of all professional occupations? Or is it something that's particularly magnified amongst, uh, amongst MPs, where they have to combine living in two places, really? in the constituency and in Westminster, which might be particularly difficult to juggle if you've got childcare responsibilities. And what we found then, again using ONS statistics, was that among higher managerial and professional parents, women had on average 1.65 children and men 1.76. And if we go back to the figures for MPs, women had on average 1.2 children. So that's a much, much bigger difference than even amongst that professional category. So what seems to be happening is that women who um, enter politics are more likely to have no children than men who enter politics. They have fewer children, but they also enter politics when their eldest child is slightly older than men. So when women entered parliament, on average, if they did have children, their oldest child was 16 years old. And when men entered parliament, if they had children, on average, their oldest child was 12 years old. And I think all of this comes together, really, to suggest that there are really significant barriers to particularly women who are mothers entering politics, not just women. And measures like all women shortlists, although I think they're needed, because without them we wouldn't have the minimal 22% of women 
MPs that we have already. They're not addressing this underlying issue of giving women who are mothers access to Parliament. And are there any policies that you think would make a difference? I would be a really strong advocate of the opportunity for MPs to put themselves forward as job share candidates because I think we've got used to the idea in many um, different professions and different occupations that part-time and flexible working is a way of allowing people, men and women, to combine commitments both to children and other kinds of responsibility, perhaps to elder dependents, with a lifelong career and so there might be periods in your career where you want to be more flexible and those where you want to actually hit the ground running and, and, and give it 120% and there should be a bit more flexibility and I suppose the criticism of that, the idea of job shares, is well how do voters hold two MPs accountable? And I'm not sure that's as problematic as critiques would suggest because I think that you put yourself forward as a job chair candidate, you have to persuade the voters to vote for you, they can boot you out, and you have to tell them how you're going to manage it and how you're going to combine it. And I, I personally think that would be a progressive way forward. Great, thanks for some really interesting insights into gender imbalance in Parliament and the reasons behind it. Dr Janet McCabe, a lecturer in Birkbeck's Department of Film, Media and Cultural Studies, researches issues around femininity, ageing and celebrity. Her interest centres on how women age within popular culture. So what have you observed through your research, Dr McCabe? Well, one of the recent sites of struggle and the site of one of my research interests is to understand how women function within celebrity culture with its unremitting uh, surveillance, as well as the implications of ageing or not within its incessant spotlight. Um, one of these key scholars who've been looking at this issue around ageing, Mike Featherstone, has observed that in the West and in the US in particular, ageing is about the body. It's about bodily decline, uh, bodies that are seen and unseen. And these claims of invisibility, if you like, were um, made earlier by Simone de Beauvoir, who also notes that age is what she calls, quote, a shameful secret, a forbidden subject. So what de Beauvoir identifies then is the experience of ageing is about being in the world. Ageing is something that's visible and that revelation of our growing older comes to us from exterior sources, from the outside, from others, from reactions to us. Now essentially femininity is imagined as a state of vitality and as second wave feminism gave way to post-feminism, collective activism morphed into individual choice. Female empowerment and agency became associated with consumerism, retail pleasures and lifestyle choices, rather than political action and politics. We kind of see that there has been a kind of shift within our attitudes towards women um, and age. Youth, vitality and girliness then define the new kind of post-feminist heroines. And here I'm thinking of you know, characters like Bridget Jones and Carrie Bradshaw. Um, and indeed, you know, the uh, female celebrities that adorn the magazines, and, you know, we can even think of uh, someone like Kate Middleton would be another good example. You know, that sort of healthy vitality, that kind of girliness, are, are the uh, sort of key, uh, um, key criteria of their kind of beauty, their femininity, their celebrity. So what's 
revealed then in this celebra- in this celebration of youth and the girliness on the girling of femininity is how our culture remains acutely age conscious and embedded into this cult of youth is a deep anxiety over the aging body let's not forget women remain objectified within our culture in which the body is offered up for inspection and in terms of women's magazines the female celebrity body is held up for essentially a feminine scrutiny in terms of retail pleasures and lifestyle as time progresses though this greeting this scrutiny increasingly looks for signs of aging or more precisely how the woman is managing that process both physically and psychologically and in looking at that media discourse um, offers us, I think, some insight into how the ageing female body is being managed and disciplined within our contemporary culture. Anxieties about ageing and how ageing can be effectively managed away are embedded in and through very particular um, identification of stars who are ageing well. And most of these stars are, are, are kind of really young still. So they are women in their 40s and 50s. So stars like Sandra Bullock, Demi Moore, Julianne Moore, Kim Cattrall, you know, these stars are seen as um, ageing well. And to a large degree, age and the process of ageing are being managed away here um, with kind of photoshopping, literally erasing the experience of the body. It's getting rid of the uh, wrinkles, the lines, the you know, curves and so on. And this is translated into a kind of healthy, natural, kind of post-menopausal woman. Ageing, has, as has been said by various other feminist scholars, is no longer about being past it, but about passing. Passing uh, for being younger, linked to healthy lifestyle choices, which are linked in the magazines and advertisements for products and services targeted mainly at uh, women who are getting older. And indeed, this often plays into the belief that women fear growing older. It's about disciplining and it's about managing the body. The idea that the female body is in constant need of care and attention. And I do feel that by keeping women focused on these issues, focused on the issues of managing our bodies, of disciplining our bodies, it does take us away from maybe the more important issues around cultural policy, social policy, how um, our old age is going to be more managed in more political terms, in terms of pension rights, in terms of you know housing, in terms of care. Great, thank you. That's really interesting uh, thoughts on, on women ageing within our society today and what the implications are in the way that happens. Dr Sarah Lamble is a lecturer in Birkbeck School of Law. Today she's going to share her research into gender issues in the criminal justice system. So, um, Dr Lamble, what are the key issues in this area? Um, So, I mean, International Women's Day is often a day that we celebrate women's achievements, um, but we also pay attention to kind of what work needs to be done around gender injustice. And I think gender injustice remains particularly acute in the criminal justice system. Um, And we need to be, I think, particularly mindful of the issues that are faced Um, by particular groups of women um, that face high levels of discrimination or abuse and oppression, um, whether it's women living in poverty, whether it's migrant women or undocumented workers, whether it's sex workers, transgender women, uh, women with disabilities. And those groups of women tend to experience high levels of injustice in the criminal justice system. 
So whether you're looking at, on the one hand, women who experience violence, you know, domestic violence or sexual assault, and try and seek justice through the criminal justice system, often their needs are not met and they don't feel that justice has been served. On the other hand, when we look at women who are caught up in the criminal justice system and are criminalized and end up in prison, their needs are also not met. Um, and I think sometimes we tend to make a kind of clear division between you know, those who we name as victims and those who we name as perpetrators. And when we look at um, women in the criminal justice system, we see that that line is very blurred. Um, so the women who end up in prison, for example, are often women who are survivors of abuse. They're women with mental health issues. They're women um, coming from backgrounds of poverty. Um, and so they've experienced high levels of kind of oppression, whether it be economic um, oppression, whether it be social violence in the form of kind of neglect or marginalization or lack of support for mental health issues, um, or whether it be sexual violence in the form of survivors of abuse and assault. Um, and so there have been, I mean, this problem is, is now fairly well recognized. Um, and so in 2007, we had the Corston Report on women in the criminal justice system. And that report recognized that there are a lot of women who are caught up in the system who shouldn't be there um, and made a series of recommendations. And unfortunately, we've not seen a lot of progress. I mean, some things have been implemented, um, but, you know, a recent report by the House of Commons found that, you know, basically the kind of um, momentum has been lost is the way that it was described. And so one of the things that I'm interested in my research is why we have these kind of continual reports that look at um, or, you know, acknowledge that there are problems in the system um, and recommendations are made and then they're either not implemented or they're kind of half implemented. And so that kind of problem is what I'm interested in my research. And one of the things that I would argue is that a key fundamental problem is that we ask the criminal justice system to do things that it can't do. So we, um, we take social problems such as addiction or poverty or mental health and we respond with the criminal justice system. Whereas what we should be doing is using other remedies to address these problems. So, you know, lots of women end up in the criminal justice system for things like shoplifting. For shoplifting is actually the number one um, thing that women are convicted for in terms of indictable offenses. And so if we look at the, the kind of underlying reasons of why are women shoplifting, um, and we treat that as a an issue, an economic issue or a poverty issue, and we try and address it that way, we will be, in my view, much more successful um, in the long run. Thank you. It's really interesting to hear about issues um, pertaining to gender in, in our criminal justice system today. Dr. Ioana Bulotha is a lecturer in Birkbeck's Department of Management and she's interested in the relationship between corporate responsibility and gender diversity. Dr. Bulotha, could you explain to us what your research has shown about that link? This paper has found that uh, board gender diversity has significant impact in corporate social performance and uh, this impact is actually different uh, across different social dimensions. It's uh, well known that women are underrepresented on corporate boards worldwide and there have been international efforts to increase women on boards. Uh, this is uh, for two reasons, both ethical and strategic. 
the strategic reasons are quite interesting because uh, they have um, come into response to some corporate scandals and also as a response to financial crisis. For example, it has been said that uh, we could have avoided the financial crisis if we had Lehman Sisters instead of Lehman Brothers. Uh, women uh, are often considered uh, more socially sensitive, caring, um, having higher empathy, and these threats uh, can be enacted by women directors when dealing with social issues uh, in business. Uh, of course, uh, the situation is a bit more complicated because women face many pressures on boards to comply with multiple stereotypes. On one hand, uh, there is a pressure to be seen as a good leader, which means they may adopt masculine characteristics since the stereotype of the good leader is masculine. On the other hand, uh, previous research has shown that many women are appointed to the board exactly because of the female stereotype and all these uh, feminine threats. Therefore, my paper examines exactly these structural forces operating on boards and finds that women may select to comply with the female role stereotype when dealing with social issues in order to balance the tension between the masculine leader role and the feminine gender role and hence uh, they achieve better performance evaluations. Uh, as a result, uh, women directors uh, which enact their female gender role when dealing with corporate responsibility issues will have a different impact on corporate responsibility dimensions and uh, this means that uh, they will have stronger impact on issues that induce higher empathy. Uh, higher empathy issues uh, in uh, corporate responsibility m uh, are issues uh, that, uh, for example, that uh, can improve uh, extreme poverty in local communities or health and safety issues, while uh, some uh, issues that are not considered as inducing higher empathy are issues that have to do, for example, with the environment that uh, deal with uh, climate change and uh, because climate change issues are uh, issues that uh, are uh, uh, considered uh, distant future issues and uh, their results are going to be seen in the distant future, this uh, might not be perceived as urgent, therefore not inducing higher empathy. It is important to understand this link, uh, first of all, uh, to understand uh, the impact uh, of women uh, on uh, corporate uh, social performance as uh, we try to increase uh, the number of women uh, on boards across the world. And uh, also it's important to understand why women's impact uh, on social issues might differ across different social dimensions. Uh, Second, uh, it's important for CEOs to understand uh, the impact uh, of uh, women on boards and uh, understand that uh, if uh, they have increased the board gender diversity, they might uh, select uh, appropriate uh, metrics of social performance that better match their company's characteristics, board, board characteristics. And uh, finally, for uh, NGOs or fundraisers uh, that deal with uh, companies with increased uh, number of women directors, they might uh, reconsider how they frame their arguments uh, when dealing with such companies because uh, companies with uh, many women directors might uh, be more uh, uh, attracted and interested in projects that induce higher empathy. Great, thank you for that. It's really interesting to hear about the different factors that play into companies' um, corporate social responsibility programmes.
Professor Annette Karmeloff-Smith is a Professorial Research Fellow in the Centre for Brain and Cognitive Development. It's well known that there are various organisational and structural barriers within science and engineering which have resulted in fewer women than men either remaining in scientific careers or advancing to senior positions. Professor Karmeloff-Smith has had a successful 36-year career in Switzerland, Holland and the UK, researching neurodevelopmental disorders in infants and young children. Professor Karmeloff-Smith, have you seen significant improvements in gender equality within the sciences over the course of your career? I must say that over the years I've seen more women get into professorial posts. When I first started, basically they were all men, and then the women were in the lower posts, and that is changing. It's still predominantly men, so it, it uh, hasn't changed that much. But what I do see as well is, for instance, fellows of the British Academy or the Royal Society, increasingly there are women. It's still 5 or 10%, but it is increasing each time. So each time we have a new vote, I see just one or two more women coming in. I think also even men are a little more conscious of the lower numbers of uh, women. So just this morning on the phone, I had somebody say, but shouldn't we um, have a woman speaker here? And it was a man who said that. And I thought, hmm, things are changing. That's encouraging. It is encouraging, yeah. Um, and you, are you involved with um, events organised by Athena Swan, um, which is a programme to support the progression of women in, in science? Yes, I gave a talk... Um, I think it was last year, I can't remember when it was, to a group here of women um, in STEM. And I gave them tips about life and work balance. I think that is difficult, and that's where things need to change as well. So it's often taken for granted that even though a couple are both professionals, if the baby's sick, the mother stays home. If there's a change in job, the mother follows the man. And those are things that need to change radically. Men are more sensitive to that now, so men are staying home, they're taking paternal leave, etc. But still, there are assumptions that need to be overcome. And do you think it's very important that there are these um, uh, official programmes, such as Athena Swan, to support the advancement of women, and that women who have, be who have successfully built their careers offer advice and support to younger women? Yeah, I think it's critical, and I think also... Um, it's very important that women do this so that they are models to younger women. There's something I'd like to add, which you may find rather odd, but I always walk around with dark red fingernails. <laughs> and the reason I do it is one of the things I want women to understand is they can be women and very successful career people. They don't have to be blue stockings. And I think that is a really important message as well, that you can have many roles and you can be successful in all of them, but you can't be superwoman. And that's one of the tips I said. You can't do everything, you know, equally well. So you must ask for help. So help in work, help in the home, because you need to be able to perform at your best. Great. Thank you very much. Um, really interesting insights and, and very useful tips. Great. <laughs> That's all for this month's Birkbeck Voices. For more information on news and research from the college, visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk.